want to talk to you today about being a friend of God. In fact, starting today and through the rest of the summer, I'm going to be kind of in a series, we'll call it a loose series as we deal with the fact of some passages of Scripture in Psalms and Proverbs. There's a lot to, to say as it relates to that. And, and over the remainder of the summer, there have been a number of people who I have used their material and studied it, and Dr. George Wood and Tim Keller, Dick Brogdon, C.S. Lewis, you're going to hear things quoted by them often, and I certainly want to make sure that we acknowledge the work that they have done in that. If you have your Bibles today, I'm going to ask that you would turn to Psalm chapter 25, and as you're turning to that, I want you to know that the book of Psalms is a prayer book. As you, as you look at this and you study it and you begin to read it, there's a, almost an infinite amount of things that I could say. The Lord's Prayer tells us how to pray, but in the book of Psalms, is, it really teaches us how to pray. And, and one of the things that I love the most about the Psalms is that probably every human situation that you have ever experienced or are in currently, no matter how good or no matter how difficult, are represented at one point or another in the Psalms. There's nothing that you can go through that, uh, whether it be a mood or a condition or a situation or a circumstance, that there's not a person, whether you're here today or you're joining us online, that can't find something in the Psalms that describes exactly what's going on in your life. And over the balance of the summer, there's going to be some different themes that we will be teaching on, but I want to start with this one today because I believe that it's, it's foundational for us. In Psalm chapter 25, 14, and I'm reading this text today out of the ESV version because I like the words of it and it, it fits well. I think it, it, it's an accurate interpretation when it says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. So, Father, as we approach Your Word today, we understand that Your Holy Spirit is the one that guides and directs us. We have been prepared through worship There our souls are softened so that Your Holy Spirit can plant the seeds that need to be planted in our heart and mind, and that You can then begin to grow those seeds into a life that brings pleasure to You. And so we ask for your anointing today upon both your word and the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a Hebrew word that is translated. It, 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 the Hebrew word is so, the S-O-T-H-E. And, and it's a word that means, it's translated, intimate counsel or advice. The kind of counsel or intimate uh, advice that really, really close friends can give to one another. And for those of you who have friends like that, you know that they have insight into you and your behavior and the way that your mind works, and so they can begin to counsel you in ways that makes sense to you. Some of you, your Bibles may have this interpreted that says, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear them, because that is also a different meaning of the word. Within friendships, you can share secrets with them. You know, number one, that they will be in confidence. Number two, that they will hold those things and, and you can confide in them. And so in Psalm 25, 14, it says it's possible for us to have a relationship with God that is one of intimate friendship, intimate relationship where God confides in us. We often think that, it, you know, it's only us that tells God things. 
In this friendship, God can confide in you as well as you confiding in him. And he becomes our close friend, and we can can talk to him about things that are happening in our life. I, in my personal devotions right now, are in the book of Revelation. And this morning as I was reading, I was going through some of the bold judgments. and And it dawned on me in the middle of hearing about what is about to happen in these last days of time as as judgment comes, I am so glad today that I am a friend of God. I do not know about you, but I am so grateful today that God has allowed a relationship with us and we with Him that would allow us to escape the judgments that are coming on an unbelieving world. If you want to know, if you're a guest here and you don't know why we are so expressive in the way that we worship, it is because I know what I have been saved from. And as a result of that, the joy of the Lord brings forth joy and praise as I worship the Lord. Now, we live in a world where there are words that we hear often, such as spirituality and and religiosity and things like that. And and these are terms that we use, and I have used that term spirituality often. But I, I do want to at least bring a cautionary note today that needs to be struck because of our secular culture. They love spirituality as in, and maybe you have heard this term before. I've certainly had people tell me this. I am spiritual, but I'm not religious. Have you ever had anybody to say that to you? I am a spiritual person, but I am not religious. And although spirituality and religiosity can, can certainly have several different definitions, I think what they mean in the culture in which we live when they say that I'm spiritual and not religious is this. I want to be inspired. I want to feel and like I have some sort of a connection to the universe or just something spiritual or divine that is beyond me. I want to feel the love and I want to sense the joy and the peace and the contentment that spiritual people experience, but... I want to be able to live my life the way I want to live my life. I want to be able to set my own guidelines. I want a life that does not have the discipline of discipleship. I don't want the discipline of having even to be in a community that would hold me accountable. I want to set my own values and create for myself a lifestyle that I desire, and I want God to bless that. That's what is meant when they say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And what is interesting is that the more you get into the Bible and the more you begin to understand God, you understand that the friendship that he offers us provides us with way more than we can ever offer him. That our God comes to us as a giver and not a taker. And one of the reasons most people say, I want the spiritual aspect without being religious or without the guidelines is because we think that our God is a taker. That he withdraws from us joy. That he withdraws from us fun. And when we get into a relationship, we recognize that he brings far more gifts to the relationship than we could ever fully understand. And so with this understanding, I would like to dive into the topic today of friendship with God, and and I want to divide my comments into two thoughts. Number one, why is friendship with God possible? And secondly, how is it possible? Friendship with God, why is it possible? Well, we're told in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. God talked to Moses as a friend. 
In James chapter 2, verse 23, it says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Now, this interests me in this way. For those of you that may be philosophers, it was the Greek philosopher Aristotle who thinks that this is outrageous. Aristotle believed that the idea that human beings could be friends with a God was absolutely crazy. And the reason that he said it was impossible is because we don't have anything in common with God. You can't have a friendship with someone that you don't have anything in common with. And to an extent, he's right. C.S. Lewis, I don't know how many of you have read his books. I'm going to quote him often as we we go through the summer. C.S. Lewis is is probably one of the best modern-day interpreters of the ancient understanding in his book, The Four Loves. At one place, he says, look, when we look at the four loves, eros being one of them, it it is kind of a romantic, erotic love, and, and then there's Philos, which is a friendship love. And, and he says, in their essence, these two loves are different. He says, in Eros, you have two people who look each other in the eyes. It's face to face. And in that love, there is this adoring. There is this longing. There is this wanting to be with one another as they see each other face to face. But the other love, the Phelos love, is a friendship love. And he says, interesting enough, this love can best be described as two people who are shoulder to shoulder and they're looking at something else together. And C.S. Lewis says that friendship starts with the explicit or implicit statement of, you too? You too? You like this kind of art too? You like this music too? You've had the same experiences in your life that I have? You too? Or, or you like this activity too? And that friendship starts when there's two people that are looking at the same thing and they have it in common. This is the beginning of friendship. That's the beginning of the particular kind of intimacy that friendship brings. So what Aristotle was saying is, no human being can ever look at God and say, you too? You too? And here's why that's possible, and here's why Aristotle got this wrong. That might be the only time in my life I ever get to say that Aristotle's wrong. (laughs) Here's why he's wrong. Because almost every part of biblical theology shows us why friendship with God is possible. The first thing that we look at in this is the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of God and who He is Himself that would tell us that we can be friends with God. Because we serve a triune God, one God, three persons, three different personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have known each other and loved each other and been in relationship with each other throughout eternity, in which case you could actually say God, the triune God, is a friendship. It's a God of friendship, a God who is a friendship from all eternity. Therefore, friendship, communication, love, relationship is primary to the doctrine of the Trinity that we love so well. Our God 
is a God from the beginning of time and before the beginning of time is a God of relationship and a God of friendship. So when we talk about the doctrine of God, it provides us with a pattern of friendship. Secondly, there's the doctrine of creation. You and I are made in the image of God. And we think, well, what does that mean? Well, it means a lot, but let me just take note of one thing. It means that we were made in the image of God who is a friendship. When we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, it says we were made within his image. There is made within us, created within us, the idea that we were made for relationship. I'm in my 42nd year of ministry. I cannot tell you how many times I have been in the hospital with people that are getting ready to breathe their last breath. And in those conversations, through the years, I cannot remember one single conversation where somebody told me, I wish I had spent more time at the office. Not one conversation where they told me, I wish that I had accumulated more power. Not one conversation where they thought, I wish I had gotten more money, but I can tell you again and again and again, I've heard people say that I wish I had spent more time with my children. I wish I'd done a better job with my friends. I wish I had invested more in relationships. Why? Because we are made in the image of God, and our God is a triune love and a friendship, and so built within us, relationship is important. And then there's the history of redemption. The whole story of redemption, did you know that, that honestly the whole, the whole story of redemption could be in one sense one gigantic cosmic act of friendship? First of all, God becomes a human being. Think about that for a minute. God becomes a human being, and it says in Hebrews that he was made like us in every way except for sin. Now, I'd like you just to let that sink into your soul just a moment, that Jesus was made like you in every possible way except for sin. In other words, there's nothing about your life that God does not know because he has lived it. God knows what it's like for you to live every day. In fact, it tells us in John 15, Jesus said, the greatest act of friendship possible is to lay down your life for your friends. No other God in any other major religion could possibly lay down his life for his friends because no other God went through the act of friendship which is called incarnation to become who you and I are. Think about that. It is impossible for any other God to be able to look at you and say, I know what you are going through because no other God became human. And in the incarnation, God became vulnerable. He became mortal. He would say to you, I became killable. And then on the cross, nobody does what Jesus does. So he becomes like us, not just in our life, but he becomes like us even in our death. In fact, on the cross, Jesus identified with our lostness because he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in our lostness, 
We can look at Jesus who's crying and yelling and being betrayed by all sorts of things and by all sorts of people, feeling cut off from God. And now you and I can look at Jesus Christ and we can say to him, you too? You too? You know what it feels like to be betrayed? You know what it feels like to have your sin cut you off from God? You know what it feels like to be hurt by others? You know what this feels like? You too? And in that moment, it becomes possible with us to be friends with God. And every single aspect of biblical theology tells us that it is possible because Jesus became us. So we look at this and say, okay, how then is it possible for me to respond, to be a friend with God? How is it possible for me to cultivate this friendship with God? I'm going to give you four ways this morning that you can jot this down. Number one is obedience. You're going, of course you would start with that one. Hey, intimacy with God starts with obedience. John 15, 14 says, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command. In fact, the other side of that could be found in Psalm 66, 18, which says this, if I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Do you understand that if you love sin and if you live in sin, that there's a chance that the Lord won't even hear your prayers? That's how important obedience is in this for us. I can't tell you how many people that I know who have lost their intimacy with God, who've lost their friendship with God simply because they refuse to obey him. Even though God has made friendship possible through the incarnation and the atonement on God's side and we being made in the image of God on our side, that stunningly allows us a friendship with him. But the fact is that God is not just like us. And we must never think of friendship with God as treating him just like us. If you obey him, you're going to become more like him because you become like your friends. Now, for those of you who are mom and dads in here, my mom had this sixth sense about her. She could tell when I was hanging around with friends she didn't like because I would come home with an attitude that I had gotten from them and I would say something in just the right way and she would point at me and she goes, I know who you've been hanging around with and I don't like it. Because there's the ability of those who are around that begin to change the way that we behave and the way that we think. So we look at this and we understand that in many ways to know Jesus Christ has already done his part. He came an enormously long way to become like us in the incarnation and in the atonement so that we then through obedience to him might be able to draw some of his characteristics into our life and that is called holiness. In fact, the whole act, act of sanctification, which means that the moment that you receive Jesus as your Savior, you are completely forgiven of your sin. However, you're not completely grown up. There is a progressive act of becoming more and more like Jesus that takes place in our life. And as we obey him, we become more like him. And I want you to know something. I like hanging around with people who are on a journey to become more like Jesus. Therefore, without obedience... There can't be friendship because in friendship, people converge and they come together and they learn about one another. Elizabeth Elliot is, is a great author that I enjoy reading from time to time and she tells a story about her little brother, Timmy. And she said, my mom had given Timmy 
All of the freedom that he wanted is related to his toys, that you can bring them out and play with them all you want. All I ask is that before you leave the room to go do anything else, that you put your toys away. And so he was generally pretty good about this. One day, Timmy has got all of his toys scattered out in the family room, and he looks at the clock, and he recognizes that his music teacher, his piano teacher, is going to be there shortly, and that he needed to practice before she came. So he jumps up, leaves all of his toys, runs into the living room, and begins to play the piano there. Somewhere in the middle of that, Elizabeth Elliot's mother came home, and she walks into the family room, and she sees that it's just destroyed with this stuff. And she goes marching into the living room, and because this is a Christian family, his piano lessons are he's learning to play hymns on the piano, you know, the, you know, the hymns of the church. And so she goes walking in there, and he's delightfully playing the hymns and singing, and she walks into him, and she says, listen, what are you doing? And Timmy goes, don't interrupt me. Don't you know that I am singing praises to the Lord? To which she gave a response that will go down through the ages. There is no use singing praises to Jesus when you're being disobedient. I have to tell you, our churches are filled with people that come for a high on Sunday, but they're being disobedient. They come because they want to feel good. They want to be spiritual, but undisciplined. And as a result of the lack of obedience, they lack an intimate relationship with God. I want you also to know that when you desire an intimacy with God and when you desire a life of obedience, that you're going to begin to discover that God brings into your life more than what you think he's going to try to take from you. And that intimate relationship starts with our obedience. Secondly, to develop your friendship with God, you need to believe in justification by grace through faith. You're going, what, what does that mean? Let me explain that to you. If you're in a relationship with God and you don't understand what justification means, it's this. When Jesus died for you on the cross and paid the penalty for you, he paid the penalty for the sin of mankind. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, and you're going to have an opportunity to do that in just a few minutes, he comes into our life and he forgives us of our sins. There will come a day, whether through death or the rapture, that we will stand before God and every one of us will be judged. You also have an enemy that is keeping tabs on everything that you do and everything that you say and everything you think that is wrong, and he's constantly accusing you of these things before God. But because of justification, which means just as if you've never sinned, our record of wrongs is covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, as a result of that, Satan can make all the claims that he wants, but Jesus said, those sins have been forgiven and they are justified by my grace and their faith in my grace. It is the reason we have joy. I'm so grateful today that though the enemy has much to accuse me of, I've been forgiven for much, and it's under the blood of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, then you are in a relationship with God that primarily would be that of employee and boss. And here's what I mean by that. You might be friendly with your boss. You may have a great relationship with your boss. But you know that the fundamental relationship is built on the fact it's a boss-employee relationship. In other words, you know that every day you have to go and you have to do X, Y, Z. And if you don't do X, Y, Z, no matter how friendly you may be with your boss, there will come a time when your boss will have to fire you because you're not living up to the expectation of what the job was about. Or, on the other hand, if you were an employee 
and you go and you do XYZ and your boss decides not to pay you for that, then you have every right to go in and say, I am sorry, I really like you as a person, but I am not going to work for somebody that will not pay me for the job that I am doing. And as a result of that, you could be friendly with that person, but you recognize that your relationship is primarily that of a boss and not a friend. And unless you believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the gospel of grace, unless you have a deep understanding of justification by faith, then you can't have a friendship with God because you are constantly trying to earn his favor. And you can't. And so what happens is you have this list in your mind of I've got to do all of these good things because God is my boss and if I want him to pay me in blessings, then I need to try to act good. And our goodness is as filthy rags. And unless you believe in the doctrine of justification, you will always be serving God, expecting your benefits. And if God doesn't come through and answer some of your prayers the way that you want him to, if you're not getting your benefits, then you're going to walk because you were friendly with God, but you weren't friends with God. And in Psalm 1-2, the Scripture says, the godly man or woman, his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he or she meditates day and night. Now, I, I want to point something out to you, how, how powerful this verse is, because this doesn't make any sense without the New Testament. But with the New Testament, it, it makes incredible sense. And, and I say it this way, because it says, I delight in the law of God, and I obey the law of God. It says, I delight in the law of God, and I meditate on it. I'm thinking about everything that this means to me. And here's the difference as you relate the New Testament to this. Because frankly, if it was just the Ten Commandments, some of us could say, I can do that. I, I can pull off the Ten Commandments. But when you take the Ten Commandments and you hold it up to the mirror of the New Testament, particularly the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus meditates on those commands and begins to open them up and in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, he gives you what the ultimate meditation of the law of God looks like. And there's a tendency to say, I can do the Ten Commandments until you look at what Jesus said and it's just not, you know, it's not just thou shalt not kill. Well, I haven't murdered anybody today, God, I'm, I'm pretty good. And he begins to say, yeah, but let me tell you what meditating on that means that you can't hate people. It means that there's no room in your life for being prejudiced. It means that there's no room in your life, and you're, you're not supposed to despise people. Or let's go to another one, and it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And it might be easy for us as married people to say, well, I, I'm not committing adultery. And the Lord says, as you meditate on that, let me take that down into the motives and the way that you look at things and say, you're not even supposed to lust. You are not supposed to look at another individual as an object that you can try to conquer. And once you understand what it means to meditate on the law of God, the way that Jesus is meditating on the law of God, I don't know how anybody that is not saved won't look at the, the, the Sermon on the Mount and feel absolutely crushed because we are incapable of living to the law of God. Without Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount should absolutely petrify you. Without Christ's work, we have no hope. And if the Sermon on the Mount is true, I've got no hope. But it says, in order to delight in the law of God 
and not feel everlasting despair, I need to have a true friendship with God because He lived the life that I should have lived. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that I should have died in my place. And now because He has taken care of all of that, I can delight in the law of God even though I am incapable of living up to it because I've been justified by faith in His grace. He's taken care of that for me so I can delight in Him. And so now... In this friendship, Jesus tells me what he loves, and Jesus tells me what he hates. And it's no longer an everlasting despair, but it's something that I can use in my friendship to bring pleasure to him. Thirdly, as I cultivate this relationship, there's a dynamic two-way communication that takes place. If you have a friendship and you never get to say anything, that's not a friendship. Somebody is sucking the life out of you. Some of you are shaking your head, yes. You may be in some of those relationships. God says, I want to be in a friendship relationship with you so that not only do you just talk, you also listen. Not only do I just talk, I also listen. You see, friendship isn't friendship if it's just one way. For prayer to really be friendship, you have to not only tell God what you want, you have to read his word so that he can talk to you. And there are plenty of people who say, oh, yes, I'm... I, I, I want to be friends with God, and I, and I pray, but you have to be able to hear him in your heart, and I do believe that that is actually something that happens. There's something alive within us that prompts us when we have a relationship with God. Now, I have been around a lot of people that say things like this, God told me, and I, I always cautioned them. I said, you know what? That may be true, but it may not be true. Can I just say, would you allow for a little flexibility in the way that you've interpreted God by saying, I feel that God told me. And the reason that we need a little flexibility there is because every one of us can be lied to by our own hearts. Do you know that this very week I have received some emails from some of you that you didn't even know you sent? As I was preparing for this, my phone buzzed, and I looked over, and there were three of you that don't even know that you were hacked. And what I got is, hey, I just was running through some files and I found all these pictures of you and then there's a link that I was to click on to see them. Now, I, I knew you well enough to know that that's not the language that you would use, nor would you send me those kind of pictures. And so I could say, I received an email from you, but because of my friendship with you, I know what is right and what doesn't sound like you and needs to be confirmed. And so as I look at this, I recognize that every one of us needs to have a confirming voice of what is God within our life. George Whitfield thought that God had told him that when his baby boy grew up, he was going to be a great preacher, and then his son died tragically of an infant illness, and he realized that though he thought God was telling him something, it was actually his fatherly pride which he mistook for divine prompting. And so if you want God to speak to you, you've got to be able to go to the Bible, which is infallible, to make sure that what you are hearing lines up with his word, because his word is power. In fact, it says in Hebrews that his word is alive and active and knows how to work with us. In fact, it is so powerful that in Genesis 1, Genesis 1, it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. I, I want you to notice the wording of that. He didn't say, let there be light, and then he went and worked on it and created it. 
It said his word was power. His word alone was enough power to have it exist. And so we today hold within our hands the Bible understanding it is the powerful word of God. It is to be believed and we can achieve it through the help of the Holy Spirit as we allow his power to speak into us. So how do we cultivate this relationship? Through obedience, belief and justification by faith alone and divine two-way communication. And then lastly, Seeking his face. Seeking his face. What does the Bible mean when it says seeking his face? Sometimes you just need to feel his presence. I enjoy having conversations with people that experience, I'll use the term, Pentecostal worship for the first time. People that come from some very conservative and very quiet backgrounds, and, and, and we can be rather shocking if you come in here for the first time, because what you see is not people responding to the reverence of the Lord in fear. You, you see people responding to the presence of the Lord in relationship, and we feel something. It affects the way that we view ourselves in light of Him. And in our digital age today, I find this fascinating, that you can email somebody you can send them text messages. Maybe you've even participated with them on Zoom meetings, maybe even had a chance to FaceTime with them. But when you see them face-to-face -face for the first time, it always intrigues me that you, you take them by the hand and you shake their hand, or maybe you give them a hug and you say this, it's nice to finally meet you because there's something different about seeing somebody face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh, it conveys so much more about the reality of who that person is than social media could ever provide. And so there's something going on when the Bible talks to us about seeking the face of God in sensory language. And it says this in Psalm 27, speaks of David's desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to see you, God. I want to see your beauty. Psalm 63, oh God, my soul thirsts for you. It affects me physically to be desiring to be with you. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My soul is satisfied with the riches of food. Now, it's, it's five afternoon, and I know that people's stomachs are beginning to growl, but he, he puts this in, in, in terminology that is sensory. He says, I, I need to feel and sense the presence of the Lord. And one of the psalmists says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why does he put it in sensory language? It's one thing to know in abstract that God loves you. It's another thing to actually feel His love. Music is a great way for this to happen. I don't know how many of you, you listen to worship music as you're driving in the car, and there, there are moments of time when there's nobody else in the car but me, and, and something will happen in the middle of that music, and tears will just start streaming down my face, and, and I'll feel as if I'm sitting right next to the very presence of the Lord in this intimate setting because, because there's something sensory that's taking place within me. And the Lord says this is important for us to have friendship with God. And we begin to think as we look at the Word and begin to have these things, Lord, if I really believe this and I apply it, will it change me? Yes, it will. Lord, would I really be going through some of the difficulties and anxieties that I'm going through if I really believe that you are my friend and that you were walking before me and you're preparing the way that anything I go through, you've already given me the strength to handle? If I believe that, will I live differently? Yes, you will. And sometimes he fills us with joy unspeakable. 
and full of glory. So friendship can be developed on our side through obedience and belief in the justification by faith alone, a dynamic interplay between your prayer life and the Word of God and seeking His face. Worship team, if you'd please come. In the second Frankenstein movie, Boris Kurloff's movie, I know you're wondering, how in the world is he going to fit Jesus and Frankenstein in together? Just, just, just stay with me. In the 1930s, there was a movie called The Bride of Frankenstein. There's a famous scene within that movie where the monster who can't speak has escaped and he's running through the woods and he's groaning and he's growling and, and he's in the middle of the forest and he doesn't know where he's at and suddenly he comes across a cabin in the middle of the woods. What he doesn't know is that in the middle of that cabin there's a blind man that is kneeling down at that very moment and he is saying, oh God, please give me a friend to be of some comfort to me in my terrible loneliness. And then in comes the monster. The monster can see that the man is blind. And within just a few short minutes, the blind man begins to recognize that the monster can't speak. And the blind man says to him, oh, you have an affliction, you can't speak. I have an affliction I can't see. Can we be friends? In other words, you too? So the blind man begins to reach over and he takes the hand of Frankenstein and begins to caress it, begins to create and make food, and they begin to speak to one another. And the monster is experiencing something he's never experienced before. He's never had friendship because everybody was always turned off by the way he looked. But here's a blind man that didn't judge him on how he looked. Judged him on his presence. And the blind man began to speak to him in such a way that the monster begins to humanize. And he starts to say things like food, good. And then, of course, the soldiers come running through the woods and they find the cabin. And in the scene, as it ends, the cabin is being burned to the ground and the monster runs out the door and is running through the woods saying these words, Friend, 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 where's my friend? It's almost like we're the Frankensteins. Maybe you're the same way, but it reminds me of, be, of me until I found Jesus. I felt sort of stitched together by what everybody else said about me. I felt as if my, my worth and attitude and the way that people looked at me and what they said to me was something that I was trying to create a self-image out of. Everybody had a different verdict about who I was. And maybe you're like me. As I look back at that time, I recognized that my self-image looked a lot like a Frankenstein monster. Others' attitudes just stitched together. And what I needed and what you need and what you need today is the ultimate friend whose love can overturn all of the other people's verdicts about you and can bring you to a place where he can begin by his very presence to humanize you. Or he speaks into your life and you become who he says that you are. And we say, if I could just find the ultimate friend, if I could 
finally find somebody who would do that for me. I could finally be human. Well, here he is. And his name is Jesus. And you can call him friend today with a decision.